0: Abide With Us, the final chapter of God's Gamble, The Gravitational Power of Crucified Love, by Gil Bailey, published by Angelico Press, copyright by Gil Bailey, 2016, narrated by Randy Coleman Reese, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Abide With Us. In the second canto of the Paradiso, Dante warns the readers who have followed his poetic journey through the Inferno and the Purgatorio of the demands of the celestial regions to which this last phase of his pilgrimage is to lead. He clearly indicates that most of his readers should go no farther, a remarkable suggestion for an author to make, and certainly not one we care to second with regard to these final pages the journey we have taken together. What fascinates, however, in this Dantean conceit, is the sole exception to his warning. The readers the poet declares capable of following him into the bewildering Empyrean regions are those who have regularly eaten the Panus Angelicus. You other few who have set yourselves to eat the bread of angels by which we live on earth, but of which no man ever grew replete, you may well trust your keel to the salt track and follow in the furrow of my wake, ahead of the parted waters that close back. This is obviously a reference to the Eucharist. Why might Dante feel that those who feed on the bread of angels are better able to appreciate his description of the heavenly regions? Might it not be something like the sacramental sensibility to which we have frequently referred. It is something more than the ability to imagine the reality of the Eucharist, or to affirm Church teaching on the matter. It is an ability to enter into the reality of the Eucharist, an ability which the Florentine poet seems to feel has epistemological benefits, making those who feed on the bread of angels capable of understanding his most demanding poetry. It is, as we have said, a poetic conceit, but it is one we find fascinating enough to mention as we ourselves take up the Eucharistic theme. And so we come at last to the misplaced center of this book, as it is the center of its author's life and, in fact, the largely lost center of history itself, the midpoint in the meantime, the Table of the Lord. With so few pages given to so imponderable a mystery, we can only hope that the pedantry and parsimony of these concluding words will serve at least as fitting analogue for the all too ordinary scraps of bread and sips of wine of which the sacrament in question appears to consist. Max Weber gave sociological prominence to the term disenchantment by which he designated the triumph of the analytic rationalistic, bureaucratic secularism of the modern era. Like the vocabulary of sacrifice and the sacred, disenchantment carries both a positive and a negative connotation. It is the cure for the dreamlike and superstitious cast of mind found among primitive peoples and contemporary utopian ideologues, but it is a curse when it represents an incapacity to perceive or acknowledge the subtle realities that elude the merely practical or strictly rationalistic mind. In fact, the form of rationalism that survives in this our irrational age is not truly rational, for it fails to recognize, much less appreciate, the myriad ways in which truth, goodness, and beauty interweave, enchant, and summon us to fulfill our ultimate human vocation. A mind so impervious to mystery and miracle and the ways of the Spirit, who both dwells in our heart and leads us to the whole truth, is a mind devoid of what we have repeatedly characterized as man's sacramental sensibilities. Today, the dreary disenchantment of the materialist and rationalist lives side by side, and often enough within the breast of one person. With a dreamily enchanted ideological or political credulity, which ascribes religious meaning to worldly causes to which one can consecrate oneself wholeheartedly. In such a world, one who has managed to retain a sacramental sensibility will feel himself something of an interloper. But he is also a spiritual aristocrat. Enjoying unearned privileges he has no right to squander only on his own behalf, and which it is his responsibility to dispense to those who lack these gifts and from whom what little they have might otherwise be lost. We have used René Girard's work to foreground the role Christianity has played in exposing and delegitimizing the age-old procedures for bringing order out of disorder by means of violence that climaxes in catharsis and emerges from the mystical fogs of the manifold ritual religions of antiquity. Traces of this ritualistic violence— and often more than traces, can be found in the religious traditions of our own time. Modernity can be characterized most succinctly as the age that, implicitly, thought it possible and preferable to eliminate these traces of sacrality and, with equal confidence, implicitly, believe that the resulting systems of secularized religiosity some religious in a conventional way and some more or less political or ideological faux-religions, were sturdy and sustainable enough to fulfill the role of religion in man's life. And yet it grows clearer by the day that the secular is utterly incapable of replacing the sacred as a cultural foundation. Thoroughly secularized systems today either dissolve back into structures of sacred violence or too poorly mythologized to ward off moral revulsion, or squander their meager assimilating power and drift slowly into nihilism and anarchy. Now that we are living in so advanced and perilous a stage in the worldwide cultural diaspora that was set in motion on Golgotha, the question is, how might this scattering be countered by a gathering principle more worthy of the human vocation? What, if anything, Does Christianity offer in place of the gravitational power of the structures of sacred violence, whose moral legitimacy it has compromised, and those clumsily desacralized religious alternatives, whose assimilating power and cultural efficacy are dissolving before our eyes? Recounting the events just after Jesus' death, The fourth evangelist tells us that the Jews, anxious that the three men executed on Golgotha be buried before the Sabbath, ask Pilate to hasten their deaths by breaking their legs. The latter practice was recognized in Roman law, and reference to it reinforces the gospel's historical reliability. Since Jesus was already dead, the soldier thrust a lance into his side, and immediately blood and water flowed out, John 19.34 It can be counted one of the miracles of gospel origination that, while in each of the synoptic evangelists, Jesus' death is followed immediately by the rending of the temple curtain, in the fourth gospel, it is followed by the piercing of Jesus' side by the soldier's lance. At this rending of the side of the pierced one, blood and water flowed out, which both the Johannine author and and his early Christian contemporaries were quick to understand as the sign of the sacramental foundation of an altogether new form of community, one ultimately grounded in the Trinitarian communion and the sacramental participation therein. Thus it is that, taken together, the Synoptic and the Johannine Gospels spell out symbolically not only the theological significance of Jesus' death, but no less strikingly its anthropological ramifications. The world has shifted on its true axis, the cross of Christ, and henceforth history will consist of the long, slow, and often tragic reorientation from a primitive sacred to a sacramental form of religious meaning and social solidarity. These juxtaposing references to the desacralizing effect of the gospel, the expose of the system of sacred violence exemplified by the rending of the temple veil and the sacramental alternative to the old sacred system symbolized by the blood and water flowing from the side of the crucified Christ, acquit Christianity of the charge that it is responsible not for making secularity possible, which it did, but for making hypertrophic, irreligious secularism inevitable, which it most certainly did not. These charges fail to recognize the sacramental alternative to the primitive sacred, which is at the center of the lived experience of apostolic Christianity. It has been the historical privilege and responsibility of Catholic Christianity to fashion within the Church herself and for the sake of the world outside her immediate embrace, a sacramentally grounded communio, one far worthier of man's supreme calling than was the old sacred anthropology, at the occluded heart of which was violence. A Catholic with his sacramental sensibilities intact will find himself liturgically participating in a cosmic drama when beholding the elevation of the consecrated host at a Catholic Mass. Someone else, suffering from what William Blake calls single vision and Newton's sleep, would see nothing more than a piece of bread and a silly ritual. But that little piece of bread and that little cup of wine represent the entire created order that Christ is entering, transforming and eventually bringing into the Trinitarian embrace. The Eucharist, writes Emre de Gaulle, is woven into the ultimate destiny of humankind and the cosmos. Judaism, Islam, and Protestantism are religions of the book, often quite overtly declared by their adherents to be so. For all its dependence on scripture and written tradition, including its punctiliousness about magisterial teaching, Catholicism is not a religion of the book. Romano Guardini reminds us of this when he writes, Jesus knew that he and his message were absolutely decisive, so he wished this to be carried on to all nations and even to the end of the world. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20. But in his comments about this continuation of his message, the concept of a book does not occur. To say that the Christian Bible was written at the table of the Lord, the Eucharistic celebration, is to speak metaphorically, but it is also to speak a truth that could hardly be better spoken. Carl Adam concurs with his contemporary, The Catholic does not come to Christ by literary channels, as by the scriptural records, but through his sacramental and personal incorporation in the living Church. In due course, A book would be written and redacted for the purpose of preserving the living testimony of the apostolic generation, and the New Testament is the indispensable textual touchstone of Christian faith, an inexhaustible treasure, but it remains ancillary to the Eucharistic sacrament of Christ's abiding. The beating heart of Catholic Christianity is the Eucharist which is not fundamentally an act of remembrance or symbolic reenactment. Nor is the socially bonding power of the Eucharist something that happens at the moral, psychological, or social level. Though it is the ecclesial source of the binding up of man's fallen, fractured unity, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13.35 The bonds formed in the Eucharistic liturgy are far more than merely social. They are the outworking, in this life, of the bond that unites the Trinity, the bonds of love that move the sun and the other stars. To the extent that one is actually brought into the orbit of Trinitarian love, one is brought into a more meaningful unity first with one's fellow communicants and then with all those everywhere for whom Christ died. To be in communication with Christ, writes the future Pope Joseph Ratzinger, is by its very nature to be in communication with one another as well. No more are we alongside one another, each for himself. Rather, everyone else who goes to Eucharistic communion is for me, so to speak, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Genesis 2.23 Jesus often both acted and spoke in ways that proved disconcerting to his audience, precisely because they seemed to violate in one way or another the paramount distinctions between the sacred and the profane, between Jew and Gentile, between the spiritual and the material, or between the Sabbath and the rest of the week. These distinctions gave rise to dissension even among his disciples over the most essential features of Jesus' mission. Arguably, the words that most disturbed his own followers are those recorded in the famous Bread of Life discourse in John's Gospel. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven." that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. John six forty-eight 48-51 Quite understandably, the reaction to the obvious grotesqueness of this image was one of revulsion, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? John 6.52 Had Jesus inadvertently employed a metaphor that proved to be too shocking and too easily misunderstood, one would have expected him to clarify the misunderstanding by toning down the off-putting imagery. He did no such thing. Rather, he drove home, in an unequivocal way, the most repellent features of the image he had used. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and i in him john 6:53 to 56 jesus could not have been surprised by the disciples reaction nor by the fact that his response to it compounded the visceral revulsion of those who heard it most of whom forthwith abandoned him the fourth evangelist who wrote his gospel no earlier than the late 1st century had either known jesus himself the Johannine beloved disciple, or he had relied on the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle John. His access to historical details, long overlooked by exegetes, has recently been better appreciated. The fact that the Johannine author doubtless seized on the sacramental implications of this event to which he was personally privy, or of which he was well informed by someone who was, and which he recounts with theological deftness, takes nothing away from the unavoidable supposition that nothing less than an explicitly cannibalistic image, the hardly unexpected damage to Jesus' reputation notwithstanding, would convey the message Jesus was trying to communicate. The invitation was, and will ever be, to respond with Abrahamic simplicity and Marian trust. Jesus said, take this and eat it. He did not say, take this and explore its metaphorical possibilities. Romano Guardini brings us back to the irreducible realism that so startled even Jesus' closest disciples and that would prove a stumbling block to so many of their descendants in the faith. For almost 2,000 years, men have prayed and probed and fought over the meaning of these words. They have become the sign of a community that is holier, more intimate than any other, but also occasion for profoundest schism. Hence, when we ask what they mean, let us first be clear as to how they should be taken. There is only one answer, literally. The words mean precisely what they say. The aforementioned Kierkegaardian distinction between an admirer and a follower is pertinent here. Almost inevitably, one who is to become a follower will, in the first instance, be an admirer. For as Kierkegaard observes, admiration is requisite in one sense in order to get people enlisted. But the moment comes when something more demanding is required. But when the truth, true to itself, in being the truth, little by little, more and more definitely, unfolds itself as the truth, the moment comes when no admirer can hold out with it, a moment when it shakes admirers from it as the storm shakes the worm-eaten fruit from the tree. And it is Christ's life precisely which has made it evident, terribly evident, what a dreadful falsehood it is to admire the truth instead of following it a thought which, in the preposterous days of Christendom, when peace and security favor this misunderstanding, ought, if possible, to be brought to remembrance every Sunday. For when no danger is present, when there is a dead calm, when everything is favorable to Christianity, it is only too easy to mistake an admirer for a follower. And this may pass quite unobserved, the admirer may die in the illusion that the relationship he assumed was the true one. So unexpected and so ravaging of conventional Jewish sensibilities was this particular storm that it not only shook the worm-eaten fruit of mere admiration from the tree, but it left even those who had begun the transition from admirers to followers completely perplexed. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John six sixty-six to 69 It was the impulsive and outspoken Peter who had the temerity to speak out when he felt the ground beneath him giving way. Remember his rebuke to Jesus' Caesarea Philippi announcement of his impending passion and death, Mark 8.32, and his post-Easter shock at the idea of violating Jewish dietary laws, Acts 10. Characteristically, Peter vehemently objected to having Jesus wash his feet at the Johannine Last Supper John thirteen eight, Why? Balthazar answers, Because this means the collapse of the total religious order of values of the natural man. God is above, man is below. The saint is above, the sinner is below. It is not enough to accuse Peter here of obstinacy and blindness. It is the homo religiosus who speaks or shouts out of him. The answer is... If I do not wash you, you have no fellowship with me. On the one side stands the world's order of things, on the other side, fellowship with Jesus. In the famous Bread of Life discourse in John's Gospel, there is reason to assume that Jesus questioned Peter, Do you also wish to go away? was elicited by some indication that Peter too had found such graphically shocking imagery profoundly disturbing. By asking Peter whether he wished to abandon him, Jesus was putting into words precisely the terrible thought that Peter himself would surely have been reluctant to bring into consciousness, namely, that circumstances might lead to a break with Jesus and a return to the life he had lived prior to his discipleship. What does it cost a person to utter Peter's words, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John 6:68 6, and 69. According to Glenn W. Olson, participation in the sacramental and ecclesial communion bequeathed to us by Christ requires the resacralization of intelligence, with neither Olson's pithiness nor the Johannine author's economy of expression. But nonetheless, quite magnificently, Romano Gradini has captured the essence of the conversion experience, the metanoia, which brings an incipient form of Christian faith to its maturity. Unconverted man lives in the visible world, judging all that is or may be by tradition's experience and by the rules of logic. But when he encounters Christ, he must either accept him, and his revolutionary approach to truth, or lose him. If he attempts to judge also the Lord by the standards of common experience, he will soon notice that he is dealing with something outside experience. He will have to discard the norms of the past and take Christ as his new point of departure. When he no longer attempts to subject Christ to immediate reason and experience— he will recognize him as the supreme measure of all possible reality. The intellect, jealous for its own sovereignty, rejects such recognition, which would put an end to its world-anchored self-glorification and surrender it into the hands of the God of Revelation. This is the risk any would-be Christian must take. If he takes it, a profound revolution begins. It may take a disquieting, even frightening form, may demand passage through stifling darkness and perplexity. All that, until now, has seemed certain suddenly becomes questionable. The whole conception of reality, the whole idea of existence is turned upside down. Only the haunting question persists. Is Christ really so great that he can be the norm of all that is? Does the world really lose itself in him? Or is the whole idea only another magnificent example of the human tendency to make that which it reveres the measure of all things, another proof of the blindness inherent in all love? Yet the longer the intellect continues to grope, the clearer it becomes that the love of Christ is essentially different from every other love. And to the degree that the searching individual experiences such spiritual revolution, he gains an amplitude, a superiority, a synthesizing power of reason that no natural insight can match. Where in life is one confronted with the decision of which Guardini speaks? There may be many situations in which one is forced to decide between the norms of the past and the standards of common experience, on one hand, and on the other hand, Christ as the new point of departure. But entering fully into the mystery of the Eucharist is clearly one of these situations, and it may be the supreme one. There is a link subtle but significant between the explicitly Eucharistic account in John's Gospel and Luke's equally significant Eucharistic story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Luke's Road to Emmaus story, the risen Christ accompanies the disciples as they are leaving Jerusalem because, as we learn in the course of the story, Jesus' execution had crushed their hope. In leaving Jerusalem, they were leaving behind their discipleship and their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. The risen Christ joined them on their journey. As was typically the case with Jesus' resurrection appearances, he was not immediately recognizable; their eyes were kept from recognizing him luke twenty four sixteen Let us pause for a moment on this prominent but puzzling aspect of the encounters between the risen Christ and his disciples. It has perhaps not received the attention it deserves, namely his unrecognizability. As we will see below, even after having seen the risen Christ on two prior occasions, the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Tiberius fail to recognize the risen Christ. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead john twenty one fourteen after the work of Christ is finished john nineteen thirty the criteria for recognizing him changes. The visual recognition had always been the weakest and most unreliable form of recognition. Once they had seen him, even his enemies and those who managed to remain indifferent toward him how hard that must have been, were able to pick him out in a crowd. They were able to recognize him. But were they really? Of course not. After the resurrection, this weak and spiritually ineffectual form of recognition was eliminated, not for the purpose of playing cat and mouse with his disciples, but in order to bring them and us to a true recognition of Christ. Thus it was with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Their conversation with the stranger began with them pouring out their disappointment and telling Jesus of the rumor that women among the disciples had gone to the tomb in which the body of Jesus was laid and found it empty. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken! Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself Luke twenty four twenty five to twenty seven. In these three verses we have a synopsis of what took place among the disciples of Jesus in the first few decades following the Passion, Resurrection, Ascension, and Pentecost. These seminal Christian events were utterly unique and unexpected even to those who were closest to Jesus prior to his passion. Far from causing the dominical generation and its immediate successors to renounce its Jewish heritage, that would become a temptation later, the shock of these events inspired the early church instead to pore over the Jewish scriptures where they found recognizable foreshadowings of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. In doing so, they had something of the same experience that the reader of a detective novel has when the mystery is finally revealed. G.K. Chesterton opined that the story Christians had to tell was more like a detective novel than a romance novel. Suddenly, all the otherwise puzzling and disconnected clues fall into place and make sense. The history of first-century Christianity is therefore encapsulated in these three verses in Luke. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus explained how the Jewish scriptures led to him and provided the antecedent narratives for understanding why this was so. Alas, we do not have the transcription of that discourse. But Christians for 2,000 years have been discovering its essential content as they lavish attention and affection on the Hebrew scriptures and derive from them a richer understanding of the basic principles of their faith. It bears noting at this point that it was René Girard's intellectual achievement to have recognized the stunning structural similarities between the passion story in the gospel and the myths and rituals of pagan antiquity. In effect, Girard has appended a footnote to the Emmaus Road discourse of the risen Christ, citing the many ways in which the pagan religions can also be read as harbingers of the Christian revelation. Turning again to Luke's account, when the two disciples and the mysterious man who accompanied them approached the village of Emmaus, Luke tells his readers that the unrecognized Jesus appeared to be going further. Luke twenty four twenty eight. This brief but puzzling comment, at first so seemingly gratuitous, but on reflection so fascinating might be read as the supremely succinct Lucan summary of the farewell discourse in John's Gospel, John 16 and following. But to what purpose is that reference in this story? We can surmise. Jesus' bread-of-life discourse and the reaction it caused in both the gathered crowd and his own disciples represented a critical moment in the discipleship of Simon Peter he suddenly came face to face with the possibility of living without what he had found in Jesus. The alacrity with which Simon Peter rejected the suggestion that he and his fellow disciples might cease to follow Christ is echoed in the Lucan account at precisely the moment when it appeared that Jesus intended to part company with the two disciples at Emmaus. Arguably, it is the shocking possibility of watching Christ leave the erstwhile Christian behind that brings faith in Christ to maturity. It bears mentioning in this context that many Christians today, in starkly different social and cultural contexts, from the murderous persecutions in Muslim lands to the various efforts to marginalize Christianity in the Anglo-European cultures once thought to be its natural and perennial home, have a vague but disconcerting sense of Christ receding from their world. We can pray that the shock that accompanies that apprehension will elicit something comparable to the Emmaus disciples' plea, Stay! Abide with us! Or St. Peter's exclamation, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In both the Johannine and Lucan accounts, there seems to have been a hurdle for his disciples to overcome, and only on the far side of that hurdle would their discipleship be mature enough to recognize precisely how it was that he intended to abide with them after his earthly departure. Perhaps blurting out as reflexively as had the disciple of John in the fourth gospel who said, "'Where do you abide?' the two disciples respond to the dreaded possibility that the man who had opened the scriptures to them might leave them behind by urging, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. Luke 24:29. Abide with us. How then does Jesus abide with his disciples, both in Luke's unforgettable post-Easter story and in history after Christ's ascension? So he went in to stay, abide with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Luke twenty four twenty nine to 33 In the Greek of Luke's Gospel, the verb for rising, they rose that same hour, is the same word used to speak of the rising of Christ from the tomb. The risen Christ was gone, but departed in such a way as to remain not merely in the memory, but in the hearts and minds of those whose existence he had assimilated to himself precisely in the Eucharistic sharing of himself. This absence knows itself to be henceforth indwelt by a presence, as Louis-Marie Chauvet puts it. He who rose from the tomb has departed, but only after depositing himself within the community of his disciples and thereby empowering them to rise and return to the work of announcing the good news of the gospel. Just as the flight from Jerusalem, which had become a dangerous place for the followers of Jesus, represented the initial decision by the two disciples to put their lives back together in the aftermath of their disappointment, so the abrupt return to Jerusalem that same hour represents Christian discipleship fully fledged and emboldened by the encounter with Jesus in the breaking of the bread, his chosen way of abiding with his disciples. This dramatic climax can and should be seen as Jesus' answer to the invitation to abide with us. The Eucharist and the larger sacramental economy by which the ecclesial anthropology is fleshed out and inculcated is precisely his way of abiding with us. Upon their return to Jerusalem, the Emmaus Road disciples found the eleven apostles gathered, to whom they recounted their experience and from whom they learned that the risen Lord had appeared to Simon Peter. As they were exchanging these accounts, Jesus himself stood among them. But they were startled and frightened, and supposed that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do questionings rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. And while they still disbelieved for joy and wondered, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Luke 2436 36-43 When we say that Christ abides sacramentally with the church, the verb seems too strong to some and the adverb seems too weak to others to justify what has been the Eucharistic experience of Catholic Christians since the Emmaus meal, the sharing of the broiled fish in the Jerusalem gathering of the Eleven, and the breakfast on the shore of the Sea of Tiberius. This central sacrament of the Church cannot be adequately understood solely as a meal, but the role of meals— most especially in the resurrection appearances, quite obviously was intended by Christ and the evangelists to throw light back on the sacramental gathering and sharing in which Christ abides with his people after the ascension. The material evidence for the Eucharistic presence of Christ is a good deal less compelling than were his post-Easter appearances, but it must be borne in mind that the appearance of the risen Lord Left a remarkable degree of doubt even in those whose faith in the resurrection would eventually grow strong enough to withstand persecution and martyrdom. The historical reliability of the resurrection appearances is significantly bolstered by the persistent suggestion that the risen body of Christ was insufficiently dispositive. Questions lingered. It is important to note that in the Risen Lord's attempt to convince the disciples that he was in reality standing in their midst, abiding with them, what we might call his last resort was to share a meal with them, the Eucharistic implications of which must not be overlooked. It was with gestures conspicuously reminiscent of the supper he shared with them the night before his Passion that the Risen Christ made himself known to disciples who lacked the sensorium for recognizing him in a more straightforward way jesus said to them come and have breakfast now none of the disciples dared ask him who are you they knew it was the lord john 21:12 how did they know this verse captures both the difficulty the disciples had in recognizing the risen christ by his physical appearance alone and how readily this perplexity was remedied by Jesus' invitation to share a meal. This same matrix of confusion and clarity lives on in the body of Christ in history, the Church. She rarely, if ever, seems worthy of such a lofty title, and those who have come to recognize how apposite that title is are those who have discovered this truth within the orbit of the Eucharist. Our world is becoming a spiritual desert, but there is an oasis hiding in plain sight, writes Bevel Bramwell, OMI. In a society with almost no formal moments that stand apart from the jeans and track shoes culture, liturgy is the last bastion of the authentic meaning of human posture and gesture, speaking and silence. It should be where we recover the core meaning of life again. We can learn how to stand respectfully, to kneel devoutly, to put our heart and soul into our words, to be silent and open our hearts to what we are hearing and seeing, and how to dress to show that we are genuinely conscious of who is with us. Most important, liturgies remind us of our part in the salvation that is always unfolding inside us and around us. We participate. And, for a short while, we know what is truly important. We see with the light of grace where we fit into the great drama. He who wrote not a word, except in the dust at the scene of the imminent stoning of the adulterous woman, and who made not the slightest effort to codify his instructions to his disciples, is not likely to have chosen to reach those future disciples of his down through the ages with a book. When he used words in healing and forgiving those who came to him, he used them as he used other gestures, sacramentally, not pedagogically. He was himself the source of healing, forgiveness, and grace. Nor would he rely on words alone, or even on words primarily, to heal, forgive, and bestow grace on the generations to come after him, for whom he was as solicitous as he was for those who stood in his presence. As Dennis Fawkes-Falby, O Cistercian, has written, The Eucharist is the context in which history does not undergo a rigor mortis by becoming both stiff and irrelevant, hopelessly and irredeemably glued to long-past events and states of mind. Instead, in this medium of the Church's continued sacramental practice, Jesus' universal mission, Matthew 28, 16-20, successfully extends the chain of the gospel episodes so as to reach all times and all places and make his journey transcend the limits of history without rendering it ahistorical. The Incarnation is the center of history, and the Easter exclamation, He is alive! announces his enduring presence sacramentally within the Eucharistic community and through the Church's sacramental presence in the world beyond her confessional bounds. The celebrant at the Mass and all those in attendance are literally standing and kneeling at the center of history. However momentous are, in relative historical terms, the events happening in the world outside that celebration— All of these events lack any serious claim to historical centrality. The Eucharist, on the contrary, reaches back into the mists of time to the earliest religious rituals of man, which were almost certainly cannibalistic. In this sense, the French encyclopédie, that massive effort to catalogue and recalibrate all knowledge in accord with the shrunken forms of reason advanced by the French philosophes, Touched on a truth when the listing under Eucharist simply said, see cannibalism. But if the Eucharist reaches back to the savage origins of man, it reaches with equal audacity into the eschatological future, for the Mass represents the inbreaking into time of the messianic banquet. In Balthasarian terms, the Eucharist is anamnesis, memory, under the sign of Maranatha, the Lord is coming. Come, Lord. Those who might otherwise be lost without a story, lost in the cosmos, as the novelist Walker Percy put it, can find both that story and the invitation to participate personally in it at the Eucharistic altar. It is precisely the event at which the Christian community enters into the sacrifice of Christ— each communicant assimilating the sacrifices required by his faith and circumstances with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. As such, the Eucharist, as Joseph Ratzinger notes, is not an isolated cultic act, but a way of existence. His predecessor on the cherub Peter concurred, for instance, in this passage from John Paul II's 2004 apostolic letter, Mane nobiscum, Domini. Stay with us, Lord. The Eucharist is a mode of being which passes from Jesus into each Christian, through whose testimony it is meant to spread throughout society and culture. For this to happen, each member of the faithful must assimilate, through personal and communal meditation, the values which the Eucharist expresses, the attitudes it inspires the resolutions to which it gives rise. We earlier spoke of the unique role that Jesus' mother played in the Incarnation, providing the unreserved yes to God's redemptive will, unencumbered by the preoccupation with self that is rooted in sin. Mary's pure consent comes into the drama of salvation once again, and even more elusively and perhaps decisively at the cross. Before turning to a few reflections on the abiding presence of Christ in the Eucharistic communion of the Church, therefore, we will pause to reflect on Mary's consent at the foot of the cross. We begin with an insight for which Balthazar credits Adrienne Bunchbair concerning the roles played in the New Testament by three women, Mary of Nazareth, Mary of Bethany, and Mary of Magdala. The mystery of the three Marys would thus consist, according to Adrian von Speer, in giving ecclesial consent to the fundamental articulations of the Christ event, incarnation, passion, resurrection. Christ, in his incarnation, did not wish at any moment to act alone, without the accompaniment of his church. An isolated man has never existed. He was unthinkable. It is not good, said God of this unhappy Adam in the midst of paradise, that the man should be alone. Genesis 2:18. Jesus interpreted Mary of Bethany's anointing as preparation for this death and burial, which von Speer in turn interprets as her consent to Jesus' passion. On Easter morning, Mary Magdala in von Speer's reading, does not cling to the risen Jesus, consenting to his eventual withdrawal from his earthly presence. In each case, Jesus is accompanied precisely during his necessary withdrawal from worldly companionship. Framed by the gestures of Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdala is the most essential act of accompaniment and consent that of Mary, the mother of the Lord the Incarnation awaited the pure yes uttered by Mary of Nazareth at the conception of Jesus. But this same woman would be asked to utter an unfathomable and unspeakable yes at the foot of the cross. In our chapter on hominization and the origin of culture, we dilated at some length on the nature of the catharsis that was key to Aboriginal cultural formation and on how dependent a cathartic climax was on an entirely subliminal trace of moral remorse. Thanks to Girard's work, we know that the crucifixion reveals and reverses things hidden since the foundation of the world. Now we want to suggest that the trace of remorse buried deep inside the otherwise unanimous ascent the beneficiaries of primitive culture, expressed at having offloaded their violence unto the perceived monster they immolated, finds its inverted analogue when the mother of the Lord utters a wordless yes to the horror to which her son consented in the garden of olives. This assent wrenched from the heart of the mother of sorrows at the depth of her anguish is the history altering and world-redeeming inversion of the faint trace of moral compunction that, as we have argued above, was the secret key to the inauguration of fallen human culture and to its hidden Christological structure. Whereas the cultural efficacy of the primitive sacrificial violence depended on an inaudible trace of remorse in its participants and onlookers, both the religious and the cosmic efficacy of Christ's passion depended on an assent made on behalf of all its beneficiaries, an assent that brought the fiat at the Annunciation to its final fulfillment, and which could only have been uttered at the death of Christ by the woman who consented to his conception. Just as only the new Adam, ontologically innocent, could have broken the mesmerizing power of the system of sacred violence, so only the new Eve, Immune by her privileged status to what must have been a deafening mimetic vortex of taunts and tears could have kept even these most wretched things in her heart luke two fifty one with sufficient repose to allow an even more incomprehensible fiat to arise all but unbidden from within her grief. thus was the yes of the Lord's mother first at the Lord's conception and finally at his death, indispensable to the inauguration of a new creation. In this her soul-piercing final fiat, she merged her own final surrender of corporality with that of her son, rendering her subsequent bodily expiration a fait accompli, remembered thereafter by the faithful as her dormition. All this pertains to these our final concerns inasmuch as as something analogous to Mary's yes at the foot of the cross, is asked of each participant present at Christ's eucharistically contemporaneous passion. This consent is what draws the participant into the heart of the ongoing drama of redemption, and it constitutes a yes, not only to the suffering and death of Christ, but a willingness to be assimilated to Christ's sacrifice for the sake of others writes Balthazar, Just as every one of the baptized enters into the death of Christ, so every one does likewise who assists at the Eucharistic celebration by being prepared to offer himself together with Christ in the Church's gifts of bread and wine at the offertory. If he is prepared to surrender, to sacrifice his most precious possession, his Lord and Savior, for the salvation of the world, how much more his own self, which is as nothing in comparison. meum ac vestrum sacrificium, my sacrifice and yours, says the priest. She who puts up no resistance embodies the promise that we who resist are nonetheless capable, in this life and the next, of following her example. The school par excellence, where this yes is learned and practiced, is the Eucharist. For the disposition proper to the reception of the Eucharist is that of Mary's fiat, consenting to receive Christ with complete equanimity, both from the hands of the Eucharistic minister and from within the unknowable and unmanipulated events of one's life, writes Balthasar. We do not know whether Mary ever communicated at a celebration of the Eucharist but she knows better than any saint or sinner what it means perfectly to receive the Son into oneself. She stands, as it were, behind every Holy Communion as the Ecclesia Immaculata, bringing to perfection what we accomplish imperfectly. Again, we turn to Balthazar to help us appreciate how germane this hidden and vastly underestimated event is to the theme of this chapter. I believe that the expression sacrifice of the Mass will remain obscure so long as we have not encountered that veiled woman at the foot of the cross, who is the mother of the crucified and at the same time the icon of the Church. She is present at the self-gift of the Son, not able to intervene, but she is far from passive, a superhuman action is asked of her consent to the sacrifice of this man who is the Son of God, but also her own Son. She would prefer a thousand times over to be tortured in his place, but this is not what is demanded of her. She has only to consent to it. Mary's yes at the foot of the cross and our joining in that yes as we receive the Eucharistic body of Christ is what warrants, in Balthazar's view, the appellation, Sacrifice of the Mass. In it, we perform the act immortalized by Michelangelo in his Pietà. In consenting to her son's passion, Mary entered into his death so completely that her own bodily death was incorporated into it, giving us yet another trace of the mystery of her deathless death. So, too, are we invited in the act of consenting to Christ's death, as enacted in the Eucharist, to assimilate our death to his. While we cannot do so as thoroughly as could one who was exempt from sin, we can consent in such a way that we might be capable of saying with St. Paul, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Romans 6.8 This Eucharistic consent to Christ's death on the cross which is at the same time our consent to conjoin our own death with his, is the consent to martyrdom, regardless of whether the executioner, in our case, is a worldly enemy of Christ and his Church, or, in most cases, simply the blind force of nature that rends from us our bodily life. To join in Mary's yes at the foot of the cross is to declare oneself ready to undergo the cross of Christ in whatever form one's faith and circumstances might require. To say yes to that daunting possibility is not to know for certain that one possesses the capacity to carry through with that pledge, for the capacity to do so requires grace over which we have no control. What we do have is the assurance that where sin or evil or hardship or persecution abound, grace superabounds. That is all we need to know in order to commit with our feeble will to endure the cross of Christ in whatever form it might take in our own lives. And the premier place where the decision to do so is made is at the Eucharistic table of the Lord. To the extent that they are able to enter more fully into the Paschal Mystery, the participants in the sacrifice of the Mass will be drawn into the Passion of Mary, experiencing in some small way not the Aristotelian terror tinged ever so slightly with pity, but the inverted analogue toward which it was ordered and in which it was finally consummated, a heart choking with anguish, but from which a mysterious and inexplicable yes arises, an assent to her son's suffering uttered from within her own vicarious participation in that suffering. To the extent that a worshipper at Mass is drawn into this ascent to Christ's Passion, his own suffering and confusion can be lifted out of its mediocrity and brought within the theodrama of world redemption. Adrian von Speer, a woman who knew great suffering, has given us a glimpse of this mystery. We must not fear this and let ourselves take back in the night of suffering the joy underlying this being allowed to suffer with Christ. The joy may have been sent as a deposit. It may have become insensible. It must, above all, be there, even in the most profound suffering, as grateful joy that we know to be so profoundly anchored in the Lord that it does not disappear, even when our whole capacity for feeling is required by the suffering. If the worshippers at the sacrifice of the Mass are only very remotely able to share in this Marian participation in the Passion, they can at least aspire to it and pray for the grace to enter ever more fully into this salvific mystery. Neither sinner nor saint is capable, in this life, of properly receiving the full measure of grace that accompanies the reception of the Eucharistic Body and Blood of Christ." Had such a Eucharistic communicant been on his deathbed or faced with a comparable threat to his existence, he would almost certainly have been more open to the grace of the Eucharist. According to Adrian von Speer, however, the graces that the communicant is incapable of receiving are never lost. They are held in reserve, so to speak, for those moments in life when the person is more open to grace due to the mortal or moral gravity of a situation, or these graces flow toward others in the ecclesial communion as their needs and circumstances require. Like so much else in Catholic Christianity, suggestions such as this find reception only among those whose sacramental sensibilities have survived the toxins and abrasions of our contemporary deracinated age we have sought to better appreciate the gathering event offered by Christ and Christianity as an alternative to the old gathering principle rooted in sacred violence, which was exposed and crippled by the Incarnation and Crucifixion of Christ. We have spoken of a new form of community, at the center of which is the Eucharist. It remains to say something about the mystery of incorporation that Eucharistic Communion fosters. Few have summarized the uniqueness of the Eucharistic Liturgy as well as has Romano Guardini, nor have the personal and interpersonal demands of this new form of community been sketched so well or so starkly contrasted with the spirit of our age. The individual has to renounce his own ideas and his own way, He is obliged to subscribe to the ideas and to follow the lead of the liturgy. To it he must surrender his independence, pray with others and not alone, obey instead of freely disposing of himself, and stand in the ranks instead of moving about at his own will and pleasure. He must shake off the narrow trammels of his own thought and make his own a far more comprehensive world of ideas. He must go beyond his little personal aims and adopt the educative purpose of the great fellowship of the liturgy. The God who chose history's forgotten people as his own and who came into the world in obscurity and ignominy and who thereafter inserts himself into human history by way of a church as outwardly motley as a Bethlehem cowshed and inwardly magnificent as a Marian fiat, today enters the rag and bone shop of the heart as a little piece of bread. Could the good news get any better than this? Is there any form of transmission more egalitarian than this? Could anything resist the speculative takeover or Gnostic dissolution of Christian realism more triumphantly than this? To put it more indecorously still, Could Christ have offered us a more idiot-proof access to himself than by entering our souls by way of our bodies in what outwardly appears to be but a little piece of bread and a sip of wine? So simple and inauspicious is the gift, in fact, that it is often received more readily by the humble and the unlearned than by the worldly wise sophisticates. We cannot resist punctuating this last remark, with a marvelous passage from a 1955 letter by Flannery O'Connor. I was once, five or six years ago, taken by some friends to have dinner with Mary McCarthy and her husband, Mr. Broadwater. She just wrote that book, A Charmed Life. She departed the church at the age of 15 and is a big intellectual. We went at eight to one. I hadn't opened my mouth once, "'there being nothing for me in such company to say. "'The people who took me were Robert Lowell "'and his now wife Elizabeth Hardwick. "'Having me there was like having a dog present "'who had been trained to say a few words, "'but overcome with inadequacy, had forgotten them. "'Well, toward morning the conversation turned on the Eucharist, "'which I, being the Catholic, was obviously supposed to defend. "'Mrs. Broadwater said,' When she was a child and received the host, she thought of it as the Holy Ghost, he being the most portable person of the Trinity. Now she thought of it as a symbol and implied that it was a pretty good one. I then said, in a very shaky voice, Well, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. That was all the defense I was capable of, but I realize now that this is all I will ever be able to say about it outside of a story, except that it is the center of existence for me. All the rest of life is expendable. In David Samuels' The New York Times Magazine article with which we began, Mr. Samuels lamented that the old rules no longer apply and that coherent narratives, the stories that tell us who we are and where we are going, are getting harder and harder to find, In the midst of this cacophony of ad hoc and incoherent stories, Flannery O'Connor, her sacramental sensibilities as acute as anyone of her generation, told her readers parables suffused with intimations of the larger story about who we are and where we are going. Moreover, she tells us, in the wry letter to a friend quoted above, where to look for the source of her remarkable storytelling genius. It was the Eucharist, which itself remained so ineffable a mystery that its deeper meaning could only be coaxed out in narratives, many of which seemed to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. The ever-contemporaneous story relived at each celebration of the Lord's Supper in the Upper Room and death on Golgotha is the narrative Rosetta Stone for deciphering the meaning of reality itself, the human vocation as such, and the nature and purpose of human history. It is the dramaturgical equivalent of the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis' Narnia Chronicles. It is where all the truly exciting adventures begin. One of the epigraphs with which this book began was taken from a 1953 book by Jean Danelou, Nothing is more fitting as an epilogue than another passage from that book, all the more so inasmuch as the title of that book was The Lord of History. At the time the book was written, of course, the vexing challenge to Christianity and to the civilization underwritten by Christian faith came from Marxism. Danelou's answer to that challenge, however, was the perennial Christian one, the renewal of faith in the sacramental life of the Church, the source and summit of which is the Eucharist. For Christians, the structure of history is complete, and its decisive event, instead of coming last, occupies the central position. Nothing can ultimately go wrong, but this does not mean that we have no more to do. After the central decisive event, The task remains of ensuring that all men come into effective possession of the gift once secured in principle for all mankind. Sacred history is thus also the history of our own time. In this later current period of time, the outstanding events are those of the sacramental life. This is something vastly more important than the achievements of modern thought or the discoveries of science or victorious wars, or successful revolutions, all of which things make up the tissue of recorded history, but leave no trace at the deeper levels where real history is enacted. This concludes Abide With Us. Thank you for listening to this excerpt from the audiobook version of Gil Bailey's 2016 book, God's Gamble, The Gravitational Power of Crucified Love, to be available in late 2022 on Audible. To learn more about Mr. Bailey's work and the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one Word.org If you find our work of value, we encourage you to support our efforts as we depend on the generosity of our friends to continue our work. Thank you.